0: It is really good to see everyone. Um, you know, speaking from my own personal baggage, I think, uh, and I may have mentioned this, but one of the things this, uh, this pandemic, this challenge has taught me is that to, to value this so highly. I think probably in my early 20s, which is a lot longer ago now than I would, um, yeah, it was about 20 years ago. So it, really crazy to think that in my early 20s, I was, I was almost ready to like walk away from this. Um, kind of had this perception that um, following Jesus was personal and intimate and I didn't need the body because I was just, I was fed up uh, for personal reasons. Um, and man, I've tried to find the silver lining in all of this stuff that we're going through right now and for me personally, it's just to come to value what it really looks like to gather and just, man, you know, the absence makes the heart grow fonder to, to pose a Chinese proverb and, and mix it with Christian ethos. Like, it It is entirely true. Like, I have missed, like, being with this body of believers, and so it's so good to see the kids. It's good. All right. So, back in our our conversation series today, um, it's been fun to look at these, and I think it's been a neat time just to have... Uh, just some space to breathe. First Peter was intense, and this has been just good to kind of walk through some stories of Jesus to bring ourselves kind of back to, to centered around the gospel and the words that he had for people. Uh, today is a little bit different. Each week will be a little bit different. Uh, but this week, it's a, a two-way conversation, but three people are involved. So it, it kind of makes it fun. Um, and this is one of the stories, too, like probably not the best story to welcome kids back to Um, And so I'm going to be tactful with some of my words, and you're going to have to read, you're going to have to infer from tone what I'm talking about a little bit, because I want to protect little ears, Uh, but there are some sensitive things in this particular passage. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, open to Luke chapter 7, verse 36, uh, we'll start there. Um, If you've missed any part of this series, it's, it's one of those that you can jump in at any point, but they do kind of build on each other. Uh, because, you know, in each one of these, we're probably going to see, like, one of two classifications of, like, application. There's going to be, like, a gospel application of this is what the gospel is. This, is, this is what it looks like for us to be real with ourselves, real with Jesus, what the gospel does with that. But then there's also going to be some, uh, some sanctifying ideas, too, some ideas for people that are believers that are following Jesus. What do we do with these words? And today's no exception. They're both going to be there. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to jump right into this text and uh, roll with it. God, we love you. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you, um, thank you, God, that you've called us to be a people, uh, not a bunch of individual persons. God, thank you that Uh, You have bound us together just as though we're, just like we're bound together with you vertically, God, by the blood of Jesus, we're also bound together horizontally by that same blood and by that same grace. Uh, God, today I pray that we celebrate both of those things. As we look at your word, I pray that we look at it well, we do not add to it or take away anything, Um, and God, you speak uh, to us about what you're saying today. Thank you for being faithful, thank you for being worthy, and thank you for being our Lord. And it's in your son's name we pray, amen. So Luke chapter 36, I'm going to read the first verse and then kind of tell you what was going on and then we're going to, we're going to read down a little bit more. 736, it says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And so, basically what we had, uh, even at this point, um, Jesus had, he had uh, exercised demons, he had healed people of sickness, Uh, he had raised at least one person from the dead, he had taught with wisdom that he should not have, he had done a lot of crazy, crazy things. And this was all from a carpenter from Nazareth. You know, actually born in Bethlehem, backwater, podunk, nowhere, Bethlehem. Uh, this guy's doing all these things, should not be able to do them by human terms. And then we have the existing religious society, which at this point, they are the, the Hasidim. They, I mean, pardon me, the Pharisees. They came out of a group of people uh, 75 to 100 years previous called the Hasidim. And from them, they set the standard for what it means to pursue holiness through the law. They're the keepers of the law. They're the teachers of the law. Uh, They're all of these things, and they're wrapped up in it. They are hyper-religious. And so when they see Jesus come on the scene, and he does things he should not be able to do, he teaches with wisdom that he should not have, and he begins to make these claims that he is equal with the Father, basically saying that he and God are one. The Pharisees, the hair on the back of their neck, stands up. And you know, like we talked about last week, like when he was talking to the lawyer who was Jewish, as soon as Jesus used the word Samaritan, they were ready to fight. Well, the Pharisees, by looking at Jesus, they were there too for different reasons. Because from the inception time of the Pharisees, they came onto the scene as the purveyors of religion, and their deal was this, from us will be the high priest, the high priest will rule over Israel, he will keep the law, he will maintain, he will do all of these things, he will rule the religious life of Israel, therefore setting the tone, having the most authority in the people of Israel. But here's the issue, if Jesus was who he was appearing to be, if he was who he was claiming to be, um, then all of the power, all of the, the knowledge, all of of the the substance that the Pharisees had acquired over the past 75 to 100 years, all of it would soon be gone. Because their deal with placing the high priest from their midst is, we will rule over Israel until God sends the appropriate messenger, prophet, or Messiah. And so if Jesus was that appropriate messenger, prophet, or Messiah, then that meant it was truly time, if they were going to stick to their word, to step back and say, here are the keys. You rule. But the problem was they they didn't want to hand over the keys. They, They didn't want to hand off authority because they liked it, and it was theirs. And so now we have this situation where there's a Pharisee. His name is Simon, and he invites Jesus in to come and eat at his house. Very likely what it would have looked like is there would have been a long table down the center of his room, and since Jesus, even though Simon probably didn't respect him, we'll get to that in just a minute, but because Jesus was someone of importance, it would have probably been a deal of, hey, you're going to come, you're going to eat at my house, sit at my table, and then I'm going to invite people to sit around the border of the room to listen and hear uh, what's going to be said. And so tables not like ours, Uh, it says that he he came in and he reclined, he didn't have a lazy boy, no, he would sit on his left side with his left hand on the ground and he would eat with his right and his feet would be behind him because they didn't do the chair thing, you know, they, they were much more flexible than us and they sat on the ground. And so this is what it looked like for Jesus to recline at the table. And so it says that Simon invited him in. And so he took his place at the table, probably Simon at one end, Jesus at the other, family members down the sides, and then people from the community probably around the outsides of the room listening, watching, maybe even taking notes, maybe not. And it says, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Verse 40, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. We're going to pause right there. So the setting becomes a little more tense. A little more tense. Because it says that this woman of the city, a woman in the city, uh, who was a sinner, if we take the, the amalgamation of that and we, we kind of apply some of the things that we're going to see in just a minute, um, and we even take the item that she brought with her into view, um, we can know a couple things about this woman. The first thing that we know is that she disgusted Simon, Simon was disgusted by looking at her. He was just, even the inner words that he had that he didn't say out loud, he had a thought to himself. I'm going to keep saying that because it's important. He just he said if, if this man, if he were just a prophet, if he just knew what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner, he would have just, uh, Simon was disgusted. This woman most likely, um, she earned her living by less than dubious means. Maybe she was a thief, maybe she was a con artist, maybe she was a combination of both, but it's very likely that she was, she was a woman of the night, and she earned her living that way. And, and what she brought with her is very important, an alabaster flask. It could have been one of two things, in both scenarios, equally as uh, amazing. One situation which we see that Mary did in another story going into Simon the leper's house, she brought an alabaster jar or an alabaster box that would have been sealed with this valuable ointment that would have been used as a dowry to give when she was married to say all of the accumulation that I have of my family I give to you to show that I serve you, that I love you, that I'm committed to you. It would have been very valuable. And so it could have been something like that, maybe a smaller version, because it's unlikely this woman was able to accumulate what Mary would have, because Mary came from a family. We don't know anything else about this woman, but we know that she she likely did not, because she earned her living in in ways that disgusted Simon. And so the other scenario is that she had this vial that she wore around her neck, made of the same material, this porous um, gypsum, compressed gypsum that was called alabaster, very beautiful, could accept dye. It would hold ointment, but water would break it down. Very interesting. But at the same time, whatever you put in that item, you would always smell it because it was a porous, porous stone. And the smells of this ointment would just just diffuse out. It would be like an essential oils diffuser that maybe she wore around her neck. And if it was the vial that she wore around her neck... It was the one thing that made her life tolerable. Because understand, if she was a woman of the night and she earned her living by those less than dubious means, then her life was disgusting. No one chooses that life, no one wants that life. No one goes to the career fair and says, That's what, that's what I want to do. A victim of circumstance, of depravity and necessity and this vial would have been the only thing that she would have been able to smell on a daily basis to say i can i can go another day still valuable still priceless but very identifying And it says that she learned that Jesus was reclining, sitting on his left side, feet behind him at the table, eating with his right. She heard that he was there, and she goes in. She doesn't announce herself. She doesn't say, may I? She doesn't do anything. She just goes in, and she starts to behave very, very culturally peculiar. She pulls down her hair because all women, even a woman of her status, would have worn her hair up. It would have only come down in very intimate times and people that she's very comfortable with, men that she would have served, maybe a father, maybe hypothetically a husband, or maybe other men, but she pulled it down. And it says that she kneels down. <laughs> like, imagine, imagine the way we serve Jesus, right? Right? Like, imagine our very upright status, the way that we serve Jesus. Imagine the way that we approach worship. Imagine the way we approach the throne. Imagine the way that we approach prayer. Imagine the way that we approach all these things. Now, look at the woman. Just just take a minute. Like, she comes in. She kneels down in the dirt. She pulls down her hair. And then she begins to just cry over Jesus' feet. Granted, Jesus was wearing very little shoeage every single day. Dogs were tired and nasty, but even though he was Jesus and perfectly clean on the outside, his feet were dirtier than mine. And she kneels down behind him, crying over his feet and pulls down her hair and just begins to wash his feet with her hair. And then she, uh, she, she goes further. It says, in weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head, and then kissed his feet and then anointed them with the ointment that would have been in this either vial or flask or box, either way. She dumps out what's valuable onto his feet. Now look at the words of Simon. It says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him, he saw this, he said to himself, and in thought, If this man were a prophet, now, again, I told you, he invited Jesus... Um, into his house, but most likely he didn't invite Jesus because he was really interested in what he was saying or he wanted to learn or he had admiration for this potential Messiah. But most likely, a lot like the lawyer last week, he probably wanted to catch Jesus. He probably wanted to embarrass Jesus. He probably wanted to further the charges that they were going to bring against Jesus, hoping Jesus would say something incredibly blasphemous. And so now he says, if this man were just a prophet, an inner thought, I'm going to say it again. So, man, I love the irony. If this man were just a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And basically, he's thinking, man, if he just knew, if he could just tell, he would be as disgusted as I am right now. And here's the reason I point out inner thought, because verse 40 says this, and Jesus answering. So Simon, at this point, doesn't even think he's a prophet, but then Jesus answers an inner thought that wasn't spoken out loud. It wasn't verbalized, it wasn't written down, but this maybe prophet just answers an inner thought. He answers and he says to him, he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, well, say it, teacher, capital T, which is ironic because apparently doesn't really respect him very much, but that would have been capital R rabbi, not just a teacher, but the teacher, so at least there's something going on there. So here's what he says. Again, like we talked about last week, very often Jesus is going to answer questions in parables and he does like a mini parable here. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of them both. Now, which of them will love him more? So he says, here, I'll tell you a story. There was a guy who, uh, there were two guys. They both owed money to one person. One owed about a year and a third worth of salary. So you take your salary for a year, add another third to it. That's what one owed. He said, the other owed 50 denarii, which was about 50 days. So, you know... A, about a month and three-quarters. Take your monthly salary, add another 20 days to it. He said, so one owed a month and a third, one owed like um, a year and a third. When the guy that owed or owned those debts, when he canceled the debt of both, he says, which of these two people is going to love this previous debtor more? Pretty simple question. Not a lot of brain work. You don't even have to carry the one. You can, you can do it pretty quick. You're like, okay, yeah, yeah, I got that. Got that. And Simon answered. He said, well, the one I suppose... For whom he canceled the largest debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Kind of like last week, same question. Good job. Mm. See, when... Here's the other thing about this setting. When you would invite someone into your house, there are a couple things that you would do for a stranger. Or someone that you loved. Because they walked around all day. They didn't ride in their, you know, their Yugos. They didn't have anything like that. They walked around all day. Most likely their, their feet were dirty. And when you come into a house, you, even though if it's a dirt floor, you still want to be somewhat clean when you walk into a house. So when you would walk into a house, if you were a person of means, you would have someone wash their feet. If you were a person of, of just, you know, standard equity, you would give them a bowl and say you can wash your feet or maybe you would wash their feet for them. Either way, a bowl to wash their feet. And then after that, you would kiss them as a sign to say, welcome, I'm glad you're in my house. Maybe one cheek, maybe two, maybe one, two, three, whatever. You would do that. And then the other thing that you would do is you would give them cheap oil that was fragrance. You'd buy it in the market for pennies, but you would give it to them because they they didn't shower. They didn't bathe. It wasn't anything like that. But if you're about to enjoy a meal, you want to enjoy the meal, not the body odor of the person sitting next to you. And it was a fact of life. It's just the way that it worked. And so when you walked into a house, let me wash your feet or wash your feet. Uh, Let me give you a kiss to say, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Be my guest. And then you would give them some oil. So he posed this question to Simon. He's like, Simon, I have a question for you. One guy owed a lot of money. One guy owed a little. The guy who owned the debt, he canceled the debt of both. Which one of them is going to love him more? And Simon's like, well, I guess the one who owed the most. And he's like, good job. You've judged rightly. I have a theory about this woman, and I wouldn't write a paper on it or anything like that. But I I do believe that this woman and Jesus had previously met. I think they had an encounter somewhere before this point. And like I said, I, I can't... I can't definitively say that because it's not in Scripture, but I believe, based on what we're about to read, that they had had an encounter before, and I think the encounter probably was super simple. I think the encounter was she met Jesus. She saw him for who he was. Maybe it was the Spirit. It had to be, but the Spirit was revealing in her that this truly was the Son of God, Son of David, Messiah that was promised. Maybe she had no background. Maybe she wasn't educated, but either way, she saw the goodness that he was, the perfection that he represented, the holiness that just came from him and as a result by seeing goodness she saw the lack thereof in her she saw the sin the dirtiness that every one of us every one of us according to Romans have for all have sinned fallen short of the glory of God everyone there's none righteous not not one she saw that by comparison and i think either then or between then and now she confronted what she saw in Jesus and the sin that she saw in herself. And just like we talked about a few weeks ago, she said, sin will no longer be my master. Sin will no longer be my Lord. I want Jesus. I want that. So he posed the question to Simon, and then he says, "Uh, do you see this woman? Now, of course, Simon saw this woman. Simon was boiling over this woman. Simon was upset About this woman. On any given day, if this woman entered his house, she may have not left his house alive, or may have left his house and then been dropped in a hole outside of the city wall and rocks dropped on her until she was dead because he could have done that. Because if she made his house unclean by the perversion of the law at the place that it was at this time, at this place, at this point, he could have done that. But on this day, he's boiling, and Jesus says, Do you see this woman? He said, I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her. her her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. So he uses Simon's own answer to the little parable against him. And he said, I can tell you right now that because of what this woman is doing, she loves. And she loves because she's been forgiven. Man, the, the gospel beauty in this passage, before we even close it out, is that, man, at some point, we have to understand that the glory of forgiveness will always outshine the the shame of sin. Hear it, it's huge. The glory of forgiveness will always outshine the shame of sin. Always. See, the funny thing is that of the two people in this room, only one person was pointing out her past. Only one person was pointing out her identity based on her sin, and that wasn't Jesus, it was Simon. Simon. And the one person that had the ability to see the very heart of the individual, he never brought up her past. He never brought up why she was wearing the vial. He never brought up what would, be character, what would characterize her as a sinner or a woman of the city. No, he actually pointed her out as the one in the room who was doing it right. Because at some point, somewhere along the way, I don't know if it was before, I don't know if it was during, but either way, confronted with her sin, confronted with the reality of Jesus, gave it away, said, I no longer want sin to be my Lord, I want Jesus as my Lord. And he looks at her and he sees the very fact that the forgiveness has led to love and the love has led to serving. He said, look at this woman, I can tell you by all the things that she's doing, I can look at what she's doing and I can tell you that she's forgiven and that she loves me gospel beauty in this, is that when Jesus forgives, we're no longer identified by our past. And maybe that's, maybe that's the only thing you need to hear today, wherever you are, whoever you are, maybe you just need to hear that, that when we truly come to Jesus, we're no longer defined by our past, we're no longer defined by our mistakes, we're no longer defined by our sin. Now we're defined by Jesus just Jesus, only Jesus, the past is gone. In Scripture it says, as far as the east is from the west, because Jesus forgives and he forgets. Maybe you are the one, not Jesus, that needs to let go of your past. Maybe you, not Jesus, because if we've come to Jesus in confession and in repentance and in admission that he is Lord... He's already forgotten your past. Your sin is gone. It will never be held against you again. Maybe you're the one holding it against yourself. Maybe that's in you. Maybe, maybe. And I believe this with all my heart that that our adversary, Satan, he prowls around. He wants to destroy us. And one way that he'll destroy us is he'll reach into our past and he'll plop it into our present and say, You remember when you did that? You're unworthy. You're unusable. You're incapable. And if we believe that, then we've forgotten that Jesus has made us worthy. Jesus has made us usable. Jesus has made us capable. Our past no longer defines us. Jesus defines us. But then those those words that he says, he's like, I can tell you her sins, which are many, they're forgiven. And then he says, but he who is forgiven of little loves little remember just a couple chapters ago when Jesus called Levi, who would be Matthew, the tax collector most likely. um, He had a conversation with those religious people there. And he said, I didn't come for those people who don't think they need a physician. I came for those who are sick. Those who see their sin. I didn't come for the ones who don't. When we, we talked about what happens when we become super religious, when we allow this life to be placed in a nice, neat, ornate box. We talked about it last week that it it closes us off from the people that we actually consider to be our neighbors and the people that we actually love. Here's the other thing that happens within that box of religion if we're living like that instead of motivated by relationship. We also begin to no longer see our sin because we've cultivated such a practice in our life that we no longer need to confess, we no longer need to repent because really I'm doing okay. I'm doing fine. But the byproduct of a lack of understanding of forgiveness is going to be a lack of love. And what happens when we don't love Jesus is we're not motivated to serve him either. He says, I can tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Why? Because she loved much. It's evident in what she did. He said, but he who is forgiven of little loves little. We'll never be forgiven of something that we don't confess. That's poor. We'll never be forgiven of something that we don't confess. And we'll never confess unless we see it as sin. Never. And then those who were among him, verse 49, that were at the table with him, began to say among themselves, Who is this who can even forgive sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I mean, ultimately, that's what we want, right? We want to go in peace. We want the chaos to end. We want the, the war that rages within us to stop. We want that tug of war to be over. He said to this woman, go, not go in turmoil, not go in chaos, not go in guilt, go in peace. Man, the peace that Jesus offers is only available when we see our sin and compare it to him. Even one, like even one. And we've all done more than one, right? But the gospel says that no matter how we've done her sins, which are many, my sins, which are many, your sins, which are many, in Jesus are forgiven. They're gone. They're washed. So there's the gospel message. What do we need to do with this? Well, we, we have to confess. We have to repent. We have to see Jesus as better and choose him over. I always point to my right as sin, sorry, but I um, have to choose him as better. But I I love this process that occurs too. Like, forgiveness leads to love, and love leads to service. Forgiveness, love, service. And do you know what all of that defines? Like, I've got a bracket in my notes right here, all of it's worship. Like, if we've ever questioned, like, what is worship? Like, really, what is worship? Like, it's not just singing. It's not just, it's not just speaking out loud. It's not just reading Scripture out loud. It's all of those things. But it is, like, understanding, recognizing the glory and the weight of forgiveness, loving as a result. Because understanding that forgiveness is not something that I can earn. It's not something that I deserve. It is something that has been granted or graced to me, loving in response. And then if we love in response, we do. We serve. In this particular scenario, the way that this woman served is she came in and she did for Jesus what the owner of this home would not. He didn't care enough to wash his feet. He didn't care enough to kiss his cheek. He didn't care enough to anoint him. So she comes in and sees a place of service and she says, I'll do that without saying a word. Just because she loved him. Because she understood the weight of her sin, the gravity of forgiveness. And her response was, I love you, Jesus, let me serve you. Worship. Worship. Like I think if we just consider, man, consider the goodness of God, the brokenness of me, and then in forgiveness he says, I'm, I'm going to make us one and let all of that go. And our heart must say something in return, right? Our heart must say something in return. And then our life must show something in return. Not as a means to earn it, not as a means to keep it, but as proof that we got it. So I don't know what it looks like for us, like in your day-to-day, what it looks like. Um, because we obviously will not have the opportunity to kneel behind Jesus' feet and pull down our hair and cry over His feet, kiss His feet, and pour out something very identifying or costly on his feet but our lives do provide many multiple opportunities to do the same thing just different what does it look like maybe maybe it's your neighbor because jesus did say when when you've done it for the least of these you've done it to me same thing who are those people Maybe it's your coworker. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's the the guy that you buy your diet, Dr. Pepper, from every Tuesday, because you just need it at 3.30 in the afternoon. I don't know. It's not me. Maybe it's that guy. Here's the other thing that I think that we need to see as people that are following Jesus. Hold on. Hold on to your pens. Jesus doesn't see the past of those who have confessed him as Lord, and neither should we. Simon here is an example as to how not to do it. That's the reason he posed the question. That's the reason he wanted him to see. Of both people in the room with this woman right now, Simon was the only one that was disgusted by her. Jesus knew everything she did. He was fully aware. Fully aware. Her sins, which are many. You know what he did? He enjoyed her worship. Man, if we, striving to be like Jesus, we can't look at people and see their past either. If they're confessing Jesus as Lord and they're in our midst, it's not our job to judge them based on our past. We get to look at them and see the same Savior that is in us, the same Spirit that has supplanted Himself in us as a seal, the same Father that we adore. We don't see their past. And I know that's hard. Because we're a people prone to judgment. We're a people prone to a tally sheet when we look at people. We're a people prone to count people as worthy based on their experience or their lack thereof. Jesus doesn't. We can't either. Here's the last question. Crazy thing about these two people. One, Jesus was having a conversation with. The other, Jesus was using an example. He did talk to her at the end. On any given day, after this woman had confessed and repented and proven her love for Jesus that was based on forgiveness and serving, like on, on any given day, most likely in public, their lives would have probably looked pretty similar other than the clothes that they wore. The things that they did would have probably been pretty similar. Now, Simon probably would have done it more in public. You know, he probably would have done it to be seen by more people, prayed on a corner real loudly, done things like that, dropped the heaviest money in the plate, whatever. But the woman probably would have been doing very, very similar things, but here was the difference. It was all about the why they did it. Simon, on one hand, is doing it because he believes that his actions earn him holiness. This woman, on the other hand, was doing it because she realized she was granted holiness through Jesus and Jesus alone. Which one are we? Which one am I? Am I trying to earn it? Or am I living in response to it? Who are we? God, we love you. We love the peace that you afford only through Jesus. We love that you give us what we don't deserve. We love you for letting us serve you. Father, I pray that we would not respond to you by trying to fill our box with the religious do's and don'ts. But instead, we would want our lives to be filled with the heart of Jesus in the way that we serve one another, the way that we serve our city, the way that we serve our neighbors, the way that we serve our co-workers. Ultimately, God, the way that we worship you through Jesus. I know we're prone to be very religious people. But God, I pray that you would move us to see the weight of forgiveness, the glory of forgiveness that overshadows the shame of sin. And Father, we would live in response. We would love you for what you've granted us, and we would serve you because we get to, not because we have to. And Father, I pray you'd change this city as a result. I pray that you would change the schools that our kids attend, or the schools that we get to serve. Father, I pray that you would uh, change the people that we work with, not so that we can brag, but Father, so that your name can be glorified, your kingdom can grow, so that your heart can be imitated daily. Father, remind us on a daily basis, remind me on a daily basis of how big forgiveness is. Grow my love for you. Grow my love for your word. Grow my love for your son. Grow my love for your mission. Thank you for loving us first. Loving us best. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.